Good morning. Welcome to LifePoint. If you are visiting for the first time, we are really glad you're here. My name is Dave Patch, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you, especially if you're here for the first time, and I would love to meet you after the service, if you'd be willing to come on up. Or you can stop by the information center out, out in the lobby and pick up one of our welcome packets and get a lot of information about the church. How many of you know what day it is today? Sunday. What? Super Bowl? Folks, 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 some of you in here, you know what day it is. The rest of you over here, you don't. February 2nd, it is Groundhog's Day. But some of you are saying there's this Super Bowl thing going on? Is that, is that today? It's a football game I hear, right? Says the man in the Broncos jersey in the back. Yeah, it's a football game. But it's Groundhog Day. I mean, I don't know if that's ever happened before, Groundhog Day and the Super Bowl. So let me let, me let you in on how this is going to work, okay? Puxatawney Phil, the groundhog, is going to come out of his hole this morning, and if he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of football, okay? <laughs> that's how it's going to work. How many of you have ever felt like you just couldn't make someone like you? You ever felt that way? I know it's shocking because I'm so incredibly charming, but there have been a few times in my life, I, I know, shocking, a few times in my life where there have been people who no matter what I did, I could not make them like me. One of those people was my high school biology teacher, Mrs. Schaffner. And Mrs. Schaffner was just critical and mean and angry with me all the time. And it wasn't like she was that way with everyone. There were people that she really liked and she was kind to and she said nice things about them in class. And no matter what I said, no matter what I did, she was always just giving me that scowl. You know that scowl? So after a while, I became pointless and I just kind of stopped trying and my grade kind of reflected that. But some of us feel that way about God. There's just no way that we feel like we can get on the right side with God. There's no way that we can feel like God really likes us. He seems to bless other people, but he doesn't always bless me. And we're going to look at a story today from the scriptures that hopefully will demystify this whole idea of who is it or what is it that God blesses? What does a life that God blesses look like? Does God bless everyone the same regardless of the behavior? Is there no discipline from him? And some of people out there will tell you that there is a secret. If you just understand the secret, then you can make God bless you. They kind of see God as a vending machine. You put in your money, you press B78, and he dispenses blessings that you order. And some of them will tell you that they know the secret. And if you just follow their code or use their prayer cloth or say these special words or send them money, send them a lot of money, then you'll be rich and you'll always be healthy and you'll never have any problems and you'll get really big hair and it'll have that nice blue hue that you see on television and you'll experience God's blessing. But God isn't a vending machine. It doesn't work that way. You can't manipulate him. And if you're here this morning looking for the secret code, I'm sorry to disappoint you. There is no secret code. It doesn't exist. But we are going to look at some characteristics that God does bless. And we're going to look at King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah has a life that God blesses. And we're going to see some things about him that move us that way. So if you're with us, we're in chapter 16 of the story, and I hope you are reading along because in these chapters of the kings and the prophets, it is especially difficult in the regular Bible as you read through to keep track of the timeline because the Bible is delivered 
not chronologically, but categorically, and you get the kings and the prophets separated, and sometimes it's really hard to mesh them together, and the story does a great job for you of putting them together, the prophets and the kings, so you can kind of see what God was saying and how things were going all at the same time. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers will come down the aisle. We would love to give you a Bible this morning so you can follow along, and just that is yours as a gift from us to keep. If you'd like to keep it, or if you just want to borrow it, you can return it at the end, or if you have someone that you know needs a Bible, you can take one and give it to them. But we've learned in the last couple of weeks that the nation of Israel has come to this place where there's two divided kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there have been 38 kings during this time frame of the divided kingdom. And the vast majority of them did not do well. They led the nation astray. The vast majority of them were corrupt. They led the nation towards idol worship and they didn't obey the commandments of God. And from the beginning here, now we get to the point where we begin to see the end of the nation of Israel. For Israel, it seems pretty clear that as the leader goes, so goes the nation. Uh, since they've been separated in those kingdoms, uh, the vast majority of the rulers, the scripture says, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and it affected the nation greatly. And they are doing evil and it is producing a big mess. It is like a real Housewives of Atlanta kind of size mess. It is just a train wreck, particularly in the north, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And after a little more than 200 years after Solomon has died, the nations and the people are in disarray. And during this time, God in his mercy has sent nine prophets to warn the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Nine prophets to say, you are not living as you should. This is not the path. This path leads to destruction. Come back to the truth of what God has called you to do. Be the kind of people he wants you to be. And in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, uh, it says this. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So out of love for his people, Israel and Judah, he has sent his prophets to correct them and put them back on the right path. He wants to bless them, but they are not doing right. So he has warned them, 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 warned them with nine prophets. And for the most, they've just paid no attention to him. And eventually God has a change in strategy. His compassion has not produced the change that he's longing for. They've continued in their rebellion. They haven't done good by his name and his justice could no longer be restrained. And there comes a point when the loving thing to do is not to keep ignoring, but to bring discipline on his people. So God does just that. In history at that time, the nation of Assyria has become the new big kid on the block. They are flexing their muscles and they have a big army and they are conquering kingdom after kingdom around them. And at some point, they come to the nation of Israel. They get to the outside of the gates of uh, Samaria, the capital of uh, the northern kingdom, and they have 185,000 soldiers. And because Israel has not obeyed, they're no longer living as God's people, God allows Assyria to conquer Israel. 2 Kings 17.6 describes it this way. In the ninth year of Hoshea, who's the king of Israel, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. And in one short verse, the ten northern tribes of Israel are gone. 
They've been conquered, their cities laid waste, and the people that aren't killed are spread out through the kingdom of Assyria, never to return to Israel again. And the southern kingdom of Judah is watching all this unfold. And they are just a little bit away from Samaria, and they can see what is on the horizon. And the scripture says this about the northern kingdom of Israel that the southern kingdom looked at. 1 Kings 17 and verse 9 says, The people of Israel had secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns, from the smallest outpost to the largest walled city. They set up sacred pillars and asterisk poles on the top of every hill and under every green tree. They offered sacrifices on all the hilltops, just like the nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them. So the people of Israel had done many evil things, arousing the Lord's anger. Israel had started to worship other gods. They've adopted pagan practices. And if you read the, the story, you will see some of the things that they have done. And God has said, this is not good. And the southern kingdom can see what's happened in the northern kingdom, and they have a chance to learn from them. Kind of like when you're a child growing up. You may have had an older sibling. I had three older sisters. I learned a lot of what not to do by watching my sisters. I had the benefit of seeing three of them, and each one of them made lots of mistakes. So I was able to tick off all the things that they were doing and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. Now, unfortunately for me, I also learned that strategy didn't work. Let me try a different strategy to try to fool mom and dad. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, it's not fair. I was the oldest. I had no one to go before me to learn from. I had to make all those mistakes myself. It's just not fair. And what I have to say to you is, yeah, I'm really sorry. <laughs> so the southern kingdom has a chance to learn from the northern kingdom's failure. And Assyria has now turned their attention from the northern kingdom and they have moved outside the gates of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. And they are there. And they have the same 185,000 soldiers. And frankly, it's not looking good. But there is an X factor in the story. And that X factor is King Hezekiah. He is not like the kings that have been before him. As Assyria moves in and the people are afraid, Hezekiah is operating in faith. And he speaks to the people. And it must have been for them a lot like the kings way back, like the times of Joshua or King David, because he speaks of hope and trusting in the Lord. And this is what he says in 2 Chronicles 32, 7 through 8. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Now, I love this, what he says. He says, with them, the nation of Assyria is only an arm of flesh. Now, my math isn't great, but there's 185,000 soldiers. So I think that's, assuming they all had two, maybe some didn't, but that's roughly 370,000 arms that they're facing. But he's saying, hey, that's only an arm of flesh. There's a lot of them. We have God, and as the New Testament says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, the Assyrians know that, humanly speaking, they can win. But they would prefer to take Israel without a fight. They'd rather save their soldiers to fight another day. So King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is a shrewd leader. And he wants 
he wants to take it and he'd rather not shed any blood. So he sends messengers to the gates of Jerusalem. And in the, in the, Hebrews, in the Hebrew language, the, peop, the language the people understand, he sends this message to them. He kind of goes around their leaders, goes around the king, and he says, here's my message to you, people of Judah. And this is what he says. Surely you must realize what I and the other kings of Assyria before me have done to all the people of the earth. Where are the gods of those nations able to rescue their people from my power? Name just one time when any god anywhere was able to rescue his people from me. What makes you think your God can do any better? Don't let Hezekiah fool you. Don't let him deceive you like this. I say it again. No God of any nation has ever been able to rescue his people from me or my ancestors. How much less will your God rescue you from my power? Sennacherib's message is crafty, isn't it? He says, no one else God has been able to save him. Your God is no different. And when the enemy comes up against you, oftentimes one of the first things they will do is lie about God and his power. Write this down. The enemy always lies about God and his power or promises. It's the first thing the evil one does is to misrepresent God, to mislead his people, to get us to trust the wrong things. And for many of us in this room, you may feel like there is an army camped outside your gates right now and the odds seem impossible and it looks incredibly difficult for God. It seems too broken for him to put back together, too bad for him to redeem for good. And the enemy is whispering in your ear, not even God can get you out of this one. Not even God can save your marriage now. Not even God can rescue you financially. Not even God can put those pieces that are broken back together. And sometimes we get fooled into believing what the enemy says and we live in fear instead of faith. I mean, it's 185,000 soldiers. What can you do? But in light of the enemies, look what King Hezekiah does. Second Chronicles 32, verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. When faced with overwhelming challenges, the prophet and the king don't build a, a strategy for war They get on their knees and they ask God for help. They know that humanly speaking it doesn't look good, but they are not fearful because they know the one who can deliver. They know the one who can save them and can rescue. And the next verse is God's answer to their prayer. So if it's kind of me, I would like to stop in scripture and say, what do I think is going to happen next? So here's the army outside the gate and they've prayed and say, God deliver. So what I think is going to happen is that they're going to come up with this great battle plan There's going to be some great sword play, probably some cool special effects, a little bit of trickery, and the nation of Israel is going to outwit them, and bloodied, they're going to come through victorious, and God is going to deliver them. That's what I think is about to happen. That's not what happens at all. Take a look at the very next verse. 2 Chronicles 32, 21. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. The end. There's no fight. There's no battle. They don't have to do anything. They go to sleep and they wake up the next day and the army's dead. And Sennacherib just runs home with his tail tucked between his legs. Because when God is about to deliver, he doesn't need a lot of help. He sends one angel and he accomplishes his task. And we, if we understood God's power 
How would that change the way we live? How would that change the way we trust him to deliver us when things are going wrong? But how do you know God is with you? Does God play favorites or is is there a life or a lifestyle that God blesses? What causes God to spare the southern kingdom when the northern kingdom is wiped out? Well, we see some differences in King Hezekiah's reign. and We see some things about him, about a life that God typically blessed. And the first is this. God blesses people who are committed to purity. God blesses people who are committed to purity. Hezekiah had a deep commitment to purity. It was a significant mark of his life and his leadership. And unlike the kings before him, he demonstrated that commitment by purifying the temple and wiping out idol worship in the nation, in the nation of Judah. Look back a couple of chapters in 2 Chronicles 29, starting in verse 3. In the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and he repaired them. And he summoned the priests and the Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. And he said to them, listen to me, you Levites, purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his temple. They turned their backs on him. And the priests went into the sanctuary of the temple of the Lord to cleanse it. And they took out of the temple courtyard all the defiled things they found. In the first month, in the first year of his reign, Hezekiah says, we're making a change. And he cleans out the temple. There's no more idol worship. And starting now, the defiled things are going to be gone and we're going to do things right. We're not going to tolerate this mess. In the beginning of his leadership, he begins with purification. And you know, purity is not something we talk about a lot in our culture. Frankly, our our whole society kind of minimalizes and marginalizes purity as unnecessary, needlessly restrictive, it's old-fashioned, it's unrealistic, and frankly, it's just foolish. I mean, why be a buzzkill? Why not have fun when you can do it and get away with it? You know, a lot of times we downplay purity as not important, but that's that tends to lead us to ask all the wrong questions. We start asking, how much can I get away with rather than what is it that would please God? If you want an illustration of how this looks, you married folks, think about how this would work at your house, okay? Honey, I've been thinking about our marriage and I'm committed to you and I want to be pure and I've been thinking. I'm wondering how much infidelity it would take to actually get me in the doghouse in your life. I've been doing some math and I've added it up You know, one day of infidelity in a 10-year marriage, that is 99.98% fidelity. One day, 99.98%. 99.98% is really, really good. I mean, that is a great number. So I want to make sure you're okay with that, right? How do you think that's going to play at your house, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking the same way. Not good. Not good. 99.98% fidelity. You have to remove all the defiled things, but in order to remove them, we have to see them. I mean, really see them. I mean, the nation of Israel had this stuff in the temple for a long time. It's like they'd stopped even noticing. Have you ever had someone come over to your house and say, hey, did you know that that light switch doesn't work? And you're thinking, oh yeah, it does. But you've been walking by it for days, weeks, months, or maybe there's a break in the trim somewhere. And you've been meaning to fix it, but you actually haven't. And someone goes, hey, uh, your trim's broken. Or your step there, it's not working the handrail. That's kind of loose. And you, kn- you knew all these things, but you've just kind of stopped noticing them. They just become common. They become part of the landscape, and we just stop noticing them. 
it's true in our culture and it's true in our lives. There's many things that we've kind of grown up with that we just become accustomed to. It's just kind of the way things are. And we just stop thinking about them. We start even noticing. They feel normal and comfortable and we accept them. But Hezekiah cleaned out the temple because he wanted the safe place for the people to worship God that was doing things God's way. But we don't have a temple anymore. God isn't, doesn't dwell in a building. And that's one of the reasons we talk about this place as the church building or the auditorium, because this is not God's temple. Now in the new covenant and the new kingdom, now that Christ has come, God's temple is here, but I'm not standing in it. We're not in it. God's temple is you. Christ followers are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in you. So if you're going to clean out the temple like Hezekiah, you have to start by cleaning out your own life and working on the inside. God's people become accustomed to defiled things. And sometimes we just let things go that we shouldn't let go. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Dave, you're being a little hard on us, man. I mean, come on. I mean, you act like these are big issues. They aren't. They're little small things. You know, I've kind of got my little pets in. It's no big deal. It's just this little cute thing. I kind of carry it around with me. I mean, I'm good for the most part, right? I want to give you a little illustration. This is a pure glass of drinking water. (sighs) That is beautiful. It's cold and it is pure. And this may or may not be some water that I've dipped out of the septic system here at the building. Okay? It's no big thing. It's just a little. Who wants a drink? can smell it. It's just a little. Doesn't look much different, does it? But I'm not going to drink that, are you? See, because sometimes in our lives we start to think it's just okay. It's just a little. It's no big deal. God doesn't really care, does he? But if we want to be pure, we've got to focus on it. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And like the priest in Hezekiah's time, maybe it's time for you to clean house. And we have the ability to clean house. It's the temple of Christ. It's our lives. But we have to purify ourselves. So how do we do that? Well, a commitment to, Christ, uh, to purity in a relationship with Christ for a Christ follower looks like this. First John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice that we don't deceive God. We don't deceive our spouse or our children. We just deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So for a Christ follower, the way we purify the inside, Christ has already forgiven the sin. The penalty is already paid for. But our sin hinders our fellowship with God. Let me give you an example. Uh, I used to think about this as a teenager, but now that I have teenagers, I think about this from the other side. Imagine a teen driver comes home past curfew late one night, is about to swing into the driveway, hits the mailbox, runs it over, leaves it in the front yard, parks the car in the driveway and thinks, wow, I hope that didn't get noticed. And they go inside and go to bed. 
And it just so happens that as they were pulling in, their father, who was concerned about them and checking out the window and waking up every few minutes to make sure that they're home, hears the noise, looks out, sees the mailbox in the yard, sees the car, and watches their child walk in. And not wanting to cause a scene, he lets him go to bed. And in the morning at the breakfast table, this conversation ensues. Son, how's it going? Great, Dad. Awesome. Couldn't be better. Did you have a good time last night? Oh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for letting me go. Thanks for letting me borrow the car. Well, you're welcome. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that happened last night? Hmm. Johnny and Cindy broke up, but other than that, no. Nothing I really want to talk about. Are you sure? Yeah. There's nothing you want, son. Hey, could I borrow 50 bucks? Now, see, the father has already forgiven the son. He knows what happened. He's already let it go. But in their relationship, that fellowship is going to be strained because the son hasn't owned what happened. Dad's already forgiven him. He already knows all about it. There's no secret. But he's pretending like it hasn't happened. And what the father wants is for him to come clean and say, you're right, I hit the mailbox. I'm really sorry. I wasn't careful. I'm really sorry. It's the same way in our relationship with God. Confession helps restore our fellowship Nothing about that is going to change the relationship. The son will always be his son. But they need to have their fellowship restored. To experience our forgiveness, we just need to confess our sins. What is it between you and God right now? What is hindering your fellowship with him? What is it that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on right now that needs to be repented of or needs to be owned up to? See, Hezekiah confesses in his day about his selfishness and rejecting God. What is it for you? Maybe it's some music that needs to be removed from your player. Maybe it's a magazine subscription that needs to be canceled. Maybe it's a show on your DVR that needs to be deleted. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be made right. Maybe it's an addiction that you need some help to overcome. Maybe it's a secret sin that you need to talk to somebody else about so you can get some help in overcoming it. What is it in your life? A life that God blesses is marked by purity, but there's a second mark that we see in Hezekiah's life, and that is this. Blessed people pray. When the army was outside the gates of Jerusalem, Hezekiah and the, sees the army and he prays. The soldiers are ready to wipe them out, but instead of prepping for battle, he goes to the Lord. Because prayer demonstrates our dependence on God and our inability to control even our own lives. It is a tangible evidence that we trust God to work. Oswald Chambers put it this way, prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Like Hezekiah, prayer is what delivered them. Hezekiah was a man of prayer. Later in his life, the scripture tells us that he was sick and he was ready to die, but he called out to the Lord. He said, Lord, don't let me go yet. Give me more time. And the Lord says, because of your prayer, I'll give you another 15 years of life. Now, prayer is not a way to manipulate God. In fact, it's just the opposite. The great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, described prayer this way. He said, It is the tool by which God molds us and shapes our hearts like a potter shapes clay on a wheel. Prayer isn't how we manipulate God. Prayer is how God shapes us to want the right things and to be the right person so that he can bless us and fill us with what he wants to give us. A blessed life is a life marked by purity and it's a life also marked by prayer. And one final thing, it is a life marked by persistence. A blessed life is marked by persistence. Hezekiah's faithfulness protected Judah in 722 BC when the Assyrians came calling. 
But through the years, they had more kings and more leaders who led them astray and they fell back into their old habits and they did the same things and they worshiped idols and all but one of their kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then eventually we get to Zedekiah, not Hezekiah, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah becomes king and Israel is now under the control of Babylon. Babylon's now the new big, big boy on the block. They've taken control. And Zedekiah does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, you know what? I'm tired of being under uh, Babylon's rule and he rebels. And he tells King Nebuchadnezzar he's not going to respond the way he wants. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't going to put up with this. So he sends his army, and in 2 Chronicles 36, 17 says this. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. This is God. The scriptures say that God brought the Babylonians there, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. And he spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. And they set fire to God's temple and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. 136 years later, after God has spared them through King Hezekiah, when Zedekiah becomes king, the Babylonians do exactly what the Assyrians did to the northern tribe. They wipe them out. The kingdom of Judah is utterly destroyed. They have burned everything. They have killed everyone except for a remnant that gets taken into captivity in Babylon. And remember that because they're going to become important in the coming weeks as we look at the story. We have to persevere in, in doing what God has called us to do in order to continue to be blessed, to experience that ongoing blessing. You see, it doesn't matter that you went to church as a child or you had an emotional experience a while back or that you used to do almost anything. It's nice. It's nice that God was at work in your life. But what's the state of your heart now? How are you doing today? God is more concerned with today than he is with the past. And a life that God blesses is one marked by purity, prayer, and perseverance. So in conclusion, you might be thinking, man, things look pretty hopeless. I mean, no matter what Israel does, it doesn't work. They tried the law and they couldn't obey it. And they tried the kings and they led them astray and they tried the prophets, but they didn't really listen. They've tried everything and it's not working. And you begin to wonder, does anything help God's people? And it's no mistake that right at this time, the prophet Isaiah begins to prophesy over and over and over about the coming Messiah, the one who will deliver, who will rescue us from our sin, who will pay the price, who will be the one who ultimately delivers so we don't struggle in this problem of trying to do right but knowing that we can't. You see, we're at this place in the story where it looks hopeless. But that's not the end of the story. It's no coincidence that God has a deliverer. He's just not on the scene yet. And no amount of our, our effort can make us fully righteous. We need the one who can transform us, not from the outside, but from the inside out, who will give us a new heart who will change us. Israel needed a savior to rescue them. And the good news is, they have one, and he's coming, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love and that you blessed your children. Would you do your work in our lives so that we long more for you than for our comfort? Give us the eyes to see what needs to be purified and a heart bent towards prayer and trusting you. Help us to persevere in your grace that we will see your deliverance in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.